Welcome to the M Files. You are listening to Valerie and Ella Mayers, Patty Woodfinkel, and John Woodward. On this edition of the M Files, we are interviewing our friend and museum colleague, Nathan Dorr, the curator of natural science at the Draper Natural History Museum at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Before we move into the museum wire, here are a couple of quick housekeeping items. If you haven't yet, please find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcast. Let's keep the conversation going in the weeks between episodes. You can contact us through our Facebook page or via email at themfilespodcast at gmail.com. Just a quick note, our next episode of The M Files will be dropping on Friday, December 18th. Our guest will be Michael Williams, the Registrar and Assistant Curator at the Oklahoma Territorial Museum and Carnegie Library in beautiful Guthrie, Oklahoma. So now, let's turn it over to the Museum Wire. Now let's hit the Museum Wire, where we will discuss current events, trends, and tools of the trade from the museum world. So this week, we're trying something new. Instead of having some, uh, selecting some articles to discuss, we are choosing different topics. So if you can imagine a ball cap with several slips of paper with different topics on it, we are going to draw one from the hat and see where the conversation goes. So Patty, take it away. All right, today's topic is local museum groups. Well, we were fortunate to have been part of the Casper Museum Consortium for many years, and that organization yielded so many benefits, conversations that allowed us to align different events and fundraising endeavors. And I think it was a model for other communities that had multiple museums and nonprofit organizations. And I think it was something that should be continued in the future at a time when people can get back together. So interestingly enough, before I came to where I'm at now, I lived in a town where the museums, and there were several museums in that town, did not work together. Matter of fact, at the time, and this was way over a decade ago, they almost seemed like they made it a point to try to uh, schedule things at the same time just to mess with the other museum's heads, honestly. Moving to Casper was a, a, a relief. It was amazing that the museums here worked together so well. They organized events so that they wouldn't overlap. Fundraisers were never held the same night. They also worked together to co-host events, which was really refreshing for me. So, you know, it, it was a completely different world once we moved here. And it was a really refreshing and it was the way that museums should, should be and should behave. And I was very, very excited and proud to be a part of that. You know, I've worked in a couple of different communities where we've seen both uh, a high degree of cooperation and also some of that antagonism where you have uh, different museums that are competing in some cases for the same members, uh, the same pool of fundraising dollars. So it's uh, instead of having that cooperative spirit, you know, it's this is mine, that's yours, don't you know, cross over into my territory. And, you know, that that's a very, I would say, antiquated type of mentality. I agree. So, you know, I, you know, one of my, you know, seeing the the local museum consortium here in Casper, uh, cease operations was one of the saddest days of my career so far. 
I think it can come back though. I think after COVID, we are really going to need to work together. We may have limited resources, but I think we have a great spirit, a very positive spirit of wanting to promote the uh, mission of our various institutions. And the way that our Casper Museum Consortium worked was that we met once a month. It was a group of museum directors and stakeholders from the school district and also community liaisons. And there were wonderful conversations about how we could promote these institutions in our community. And as tourism is so important to the economy of Wyoming, I see this becoming very important to our future. And there was even a group of educators, and I believe that they are still meeting even during the time of COVID because they really can program um, innovative uh, initiatives through those conversations. I mean, I agree. I think, if nothing else, being able to communicate and share that information, uh, while communication technologies have improved, so I mean, you can just read, you know, it's not the days of Ma Bell where you just start going through the phone book. You know, you have to have those, those, you know, those avenues of communication so you are able to see what your peers are doing. You know, where are they at? What are they doing? So the moment you, you remove those, you're living like in an echo chamber. You're not seeing what else is going on, and that's a detriment to your facility. And it's definitely um, harder as a museum to keep up with what everyone else in your community is doing without that kind of open communication. Um, as a director who's trying to keep track of my events and the college events, and what the city is doing and the other museum events and the other fundraisers that other nonprofits are doing, such as the symphony or the theater or any of the other nonprofits, um, it was so much easier to, to kind of work together as a group and to coordinate our calendars that way. So I, I miss the museum consortium and I hope that we are able to resurrect it after the, the new year and after uh, it's appropriate for us to gather in groups again. Definitely. Well, that wraps up this edition of the Museum Wire. The magic hat is going back on its hook for our next episode. Uh, so let's uh, go in and head into our interview with Nathan Dorr. Welcome, Nathan. Thank you for talking to us today. The first question that I have for you is the same question that I have for all of our guests. What is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you at a museum? Now, this could be your current museum, a museum that you used to work at, or a museum that you were just a visitor at. Yeah, so I had to I had to think for a bit on this one. You know, after uh, working in the museum field for for 15 years now, uh, not to mention my early interest in museums and visiting museums as a child, and and later volunteering as a teenager, I think I've had a lot of interesting and, and strange experiences in museums. But I, I think what what I ended up coming down to was. Uh, um, uh, the work that I've brought home with me here in my current position at the Draper Natural History Museum. Um, you know, as we all know, pests uh, are a major concern in museums and something that we work really, really hard uh, to ensure don't make their way into our collections. Uh, but at the Draper and as a natural history museum, uh, we actually rely on some of those pests uh, to help us prepare our natural history specimens. 
Uh, so the Draper has had a dermestid beetle colony uh, for kept offsite, I should mention, uh, for about the past nine years. Uh, but the locations have always been temporary and we've, they've had to move the, the colony around a bit. Um, but one of my first projects on my plate when I started at the Draper uh, was to oversee the planning and construction of an on-site dermisterium. But due to COVID and, and a busy uh, summer season, uh, there was a delay in the construction and uh, the, the location that we had for the dermestids at the time uh, was becoming unavailable. Uh, so that's, I guess, where the strange part comes in. I <laughs> brought them home with me. Um, so <laughs> what a logical place, to, <laughs> but to, uh, you know, invite them into my garage. So they've been living with me. They've been my roommates now uh, <laughs> since about mid-May. Uh, but I'm really happy to report that uh, the construction is nearing completion uh, on, on our affectionately referred to beetle, beetle bungalow. Um, and the pest should be heading out of my garage here, hopefully in the coming weeks. Uh, so needless to say, uh, you know, it's, it's been a strange experience to go from avoiding that really at all costs, these pests in museums to actually embracing the work and, and the destruction that they do. So I think that for me is, is the strangest museum experience I've had. <laughs> I, I have to tell you, as someone who also works at a natural history museum, I'm jealous of your domestic colony. <laughs> I wish we had one. <laughs> you, you know, I can, I, they, they, um, especially in the last few weeks, they are not very happy in my garage right now. You yeah. know, domestids are, they're amazing, amazingly complex creatures. And they're so picky about temperature and humidity mm -hmm. and I've been heating my garage, but it's not to their liking. And, and so they've become pretty inactive lately. So I'm, I'm just excited to get them into their, into their own space and they can be happy. I, I've heard that about them, that they're finicky. So, <laughs> and that, that's so fascinating. This is something about the, the institution that most people would not know about. Would you tell us more about the Buffalo Bill Center of the West and specifically more about the Draper Natural History Museum? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to. So uh, the, the Buffalo Bill Center of the West uh, goes back to the establishment of the Buffalo Bill Memorial Association uh, back in 1917. Uh, and it was an effort to uh, build and maintain a historical monument in honor of uh, Colonel William F. Cody. Uh, that was the year he passed away. Uh, today, the center is home to five museums, uh, the Buffalo Bill Museum, the Plains Indian Museum, the Whitney Western Art Museum, the Cody Firearms Museum, and the Draper Natural History Museum, as well as the McCracken Research Library. Uh, the overall mission of the Center of the West is connecting people to the stories of the American West. So the Draper Natural History Museum, uh, which is named after center trustee and benefactor Nancy Carroll Draper, became the newest addition to the center when it opened back in June of 2002. Uh, meaning that we just you know, hit our 18th anniversary coming up on the, the 20th, which is amazing to think. Uh, the purpose of the Draper was really to integrate natural, uh, natural sciences and the humanities. Uh, and when it opened, uh, and I think this is an, a really interesting fact, uh, it was the first American natural history museum established in the 21st century. Uh, so during its planning and design, wow. there, there was this incredible focus on innovative, informative, inspiring, and immersive exhibit experiences. 
so I joined the Draper uh, back in October of 2019. So I just wrapped up my first year. Uh, and then back in January, uh, the Draper Advisory Board and, and staff uh, settled on a new mission for the Draper. This had been in the works uh, for several months before I arrived, uh, but it was a really exciting time for me to arrive uh, and to kind of come into and, and help in the, in the final wordsmithing of this new mission, which is igniting curiosity, driving exploration, and creating advocates for the greater uh, Yellowstone and American West. And I, I'm being such a visual person, uh, as we got close to that, that final uh, statement, I had to draw it out. I had to illustrate it to really fully kind of visualize and see what it was saying. And so I kind of picture that as, as three spheres of, of Venn diagram, where you've got igniting curiosity. That's the naturalist component, uh, the sense of wonder and curiosity. Uh, you've got the driving exploration, which is the research, the scientific piece. And then you've got the place, this amazing place that uh, we know of as the greater Yellowstone ecosystem in the American West and all of the natural wonders within that. And where all of those overlap there in the center, that's where we have that advocacy component. That's you know providing that, that scaffolding, all those experiences, pulling them together for, for our visitors, for, for community, uh, for students, and, and really uh, having that goal of, of creating advocates, whether it's for the greater Yellowstone, whether it's for the American West, or whether it's inspiring some, some passion for place that people can take with them to their own backyards and, and become advocates there. Mm -hmm. So you've been working in museums for 15 years. Um, you've served in many capacities, but recently moved to Cody and the Draper. Would you tell us more about what happens on a daily basis in, in your um, role there at the museum? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as curator of the Draper, my job is really to, to oversee uh, the, the operations of the Draper, uh, which include work with the collection, with exhibits, research, and programming. So those four facets are really uh, the day-to-day -day activities uh, that, that I oversee. So with the collection, you know, the Draper is a relatively young museum, uh, and as such, we have a, a pretty small collection. We have two herbarium collections that total about 6,000 plant specimens. We also have about 600 bird specimens, 400 mammals, of which about 150 are wolf skulls. And then we have about uh, 100 objects that relate to the, the human history uh, in the Greater Yellowstone and kind of people in that story. Uh, one really interesting thing about the Draper is when it comes to our natural history and our scientific research specimens, uh, we rely on salvage and transfer specimens uh, as opposed to active collection. Uh, so because of that, you know, there are certainly voids in our collection when it comes to representing life in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And then ultimately, of course, those specimens, they get used in exhibits and uh, for scientific research purposes. Uh, on the exhibit side, you know, the Draper is about 20,000 square feet of uh, exhibit space. Uh, and, you know, we, we bring visitors into uh, the highest uh, habitat, the highest biome in the greater Yellowstone in the Alpine. And then we spiral down through uh, the mountain forest, uh, the mountain meadow down into the plains basin. In those areas, you know, we explore the, the sights and the sounds and, and even the smells. We explore uh, wildlife, plants, geology, 
the research that's happening or has happened, and of course, those safety and resource messages. Uh, and then on the lower, the lowest level of the Draper, we have uh, an exhibit space that focuses on one of our, our uh, long-term Golden Eagle research. We also have a, a tile map, a very popular tile map mm -hmm. of the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And then our functioning lab where staff such as uh, my assistant curator, Corey, and, and our amazing lab volunteers uh, work to prepare our natural history specimens. Um, and then with, with research, uh, we have, uh, as I mentioned, a, a very active uh, Golden Eagle monitoring project. Uh, that was the work of my predecessor and the Draper founding curator, Dr. Uh, Charles Preston. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that looks at um, Golden Eagle reproduction in the Bighorn Basin in relation to primary prey abundance. And then of course we, we partner with uh, local agencies and other organizations on research. One I specifically really want to mention uh, is uh, a partnership we have with um, the Middleton Lab at UC Berkeley uh, and their work on migration patterns in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And I think something really fun about that is uh, you can learn more about what those students are doing uh, as they do some social media takeovers for us in the Draper in the coming months. So that'll be uh, a fun opportunity to kind of change the, the voice uh, in our social media. Uh, and then lastly, with that, with that programming, you know, our Draper Museum Raptor experience, uh, and then we work closely with our uh, interpretive education division at the center uh, and then other programs. So we'll, there's clearly plenty to do. <laughs> Yeah, you're, by the way, this is a complete aside, but your educators are amazing. So they, yes. they got us, they got us started on that whole Skype in the classroom and it has taken off. Russell is constantly busy giving tours of the museum now. So it's awesome. I know it's so engaging. I've, I've visited the Raptor experience. Uh, it, it's just really an immersive environment and it is unlike other museums. I, I didn't realize that it was really that 21st century mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, idea of what a museum can be and right. how we can learn in this way with the multi-sensory um, experiences. So I, I do appreciate that. And speaking of multi-sensory, um, the, the Draper was the very first museum that I was taken to visit when we moved here to Wyoming uh, because of my work at the museums I'm at currently. Um, and I just remember being overwhelmed by the sights, the sounds, the smells. It was an amazing immersive experience. How has that changed with COVID-19? Um, I recall touching lots of things, standing in a certain area so I could smell things. How, how has that all been adjusted? Yeah, gosh, what, what, what a year. And, and, you know, I know everybody is facing it, but, you know, museums uh, and especially these, these efforts to make museums more interactive and more engaging, uh, it, you know, it's, it's caused us to kind of stop and, and, and revisit what we've done and why we've done it. It's caused us to look at uh, and take some fundamentally different approaches to that. Uh, but I, I would say that the visitor experience in the Draper, uh, while it has certainly changed as a result to uh, COVID, you know, there was a considerable amount of time that we put in last spring uh, after we closed to the public and before we reopened in, in early May, uh, preparing the galleries and, and really center-wide for reopening, uh, not to mention, of course, the constant cleaning that happens now and the constant, you know, review of precautions. Um, so while, you know, we, we removed a lot of those tactile 
components, you know, and, and lots of peeling of vinyl that said, please touch. Um, you know, I think that was the most tedious part of preparing our galleries, you know, at the Draper was yep. peeling that, that vinyl. Um, but, you know, as far as the, the kind of the sights and the sounds and the smells, you know, the, those are, are still present. And, and so while much of the Draper, uh, you know, focused on that 21st century technology and, and hands-on interaction when it mm -hmm. opened, uh, it has such a strong core uh, and a strong foundation as far as that overall experience that we're still able to provide that immersive experience for visitors while also ensuring their safety. So I think, you know, it's gonna be so interesting to see where museums go in the coming months or even years. Uh, I've been so amazed at how museums have adapted, uh, not, over, not just over the course of months, but even days and weeks uh, through the course of COVID and, and really started providing even more to their visitors virtually. It's, it's, mm -hmm. it's uh, uh, amazing, you know, seeing the silver linings in these times, I think. Mm -hmm. Would you like to speak to how the various platforms have been utilized to allow visitors from afar to still experience this museum and the center? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, so virtual programming uh, has, has been such a strong component of uh, the Center of the West in general. Uh, the uh, Center's Interpretive Education Division, uh, they started a virtual field trip program back in May of 2013. And to date, uh, they have provided uh, programming to roughly 125,000 students worldwide. And I, it's, they're such an amazing crew. And uh, I, I have to you know, say that uh, when I was in the midst of developing virtual field trips down at the State Museum years ago, uh, the, the crew up here is, they were my go-to in, in helping to explore that. Um, at the center and, and specifically at the Draper, our Raptor experience staff uh, has been uh, soaring into uh, virtual <laughs> programming. <laughs> <laughs> they, they started uh, exploring it actually before COVID. Uh, but of course, you know, with, with the pandemic and the need for uh, increased virtual programs, uh, they have really um, jumped into it and, and gotten that program going even further. Um, so it's, it's such an amazing opportunity to be able to take, you know, in, in our case, uh, you know, our, our live birds of prey mm -hmm. and share them. Uh, not just with the visitors that come to us or the, or the um, institutions that we had visited in the past for outreach, but really just then to take them, you know, worldwide. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I look forward to seeing where uh, my Raptors staff uh, develop those virtual programs even further. So with the increase in virtual tours and virtual experiences, have you had the opportunity to, to step in and give any tours? Yeah, and that's a great question. It's it's funny to think, you know, when I was at the State Museum, it seems like that's all I was doing. So mm -hmm. many, you know, back to backs. And and I knew that was going to be a big change for me going from that very focused curator of education position uh, to this general curator position of the Draper. Uh, and so I, I miss some of that. But uh, I will say that the education staff certainly keep uh, the curators in mind. And this week, for example, we're actually uh, doing some virtual programming with uh, high school students here in Cody uh, as they're working on creating exhibits, highlighting um, direct action and civil rights 
we're helping to to explore with them the process of of developing exhibits and and some of the the tools and, and tricks of the trade that we use to make those so compelling. So uh, it, it's it's a great opportunity for me to occasionally uh, get back into the education role, uh, but it's great to also have time to then explore and, and focus on all those other facets of my job. That sounds like an awesome opportunity working with those high schoolers. It's great. And it is, I'm really excited. I hope to kind of hear some of the projects that they come up with and the topics. Uh, you know, it just, uh, when I was talking to them, to, to them today, it reminded me of the work, you know, I've done in the past with like Wyoming History Day uh, mm-hmm. and just such an incredible and strong program. Uh, and, and so it excites me to, to share my passion for, for exhibits because I think it's, it's, they're, they're just tremendous. Hmm. So I follow you guys on Facebook, so I kind of know what's going on. Um, but could you remind us of what other social media platforms you use in case some of our listeners want to look you up? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we have uh, Facebook. Uh, you can find us at Draper Natural History Museum. We're also on Instagram at Draper Museum. And then on the center's website, which is centerofthewest.org, uh, we have uh, some information about the Draper there. And then, you know, we've learned so much over the past month with social media and we're constantly learning. Uh, and I think we've got some fun things in store uh, for the coming months uh, as we kind of adapt our social media presence. So, yeah, come come follow us, visit us and uh, see what we're up to. And finally, we would like to ask your advice to emerging museum professionals and our students thinking about a career in the museum field. Yeah, that's I, it's funny. You know, I, I don't know uh, if many people realize I, I museums were an accident for me. And I don't know if if that's something you can relate to. I, I think a lot of us do kind of fall into that. Um, but I would say, you know, for uh emerging museum professionals, kind of, there are three things that come to my mind. Uh, the first is just the, the value of networking. Uh, I know that this is something that, that Rick Young mentioned in, in his uh, interview, but it's just so important because those, those connections that you make, uh, you never know when you're going to need to brainstorm with somebody and, mm-hmm. and you think, gosh, it, you know, I, I remember meeting this person and it's just, it's so important. Uh, the second piece for me is embracing the opportunities. Uh, you know, I know every uh, occupation can probably say this, but that other duties as assigned, uh, museums, I think are just filled with those. And I think it's so important to be open to those and to explore those because you never know, uh, what avenue within a museum might pique your interest. And then lastly, uh, I, I would say, uh, be passionate about what you do. Uh, you know, that, that idea of passion for what you do, it gets used a lot, but I think in our profession, especially, it's so important to be passionate, uh, regardless of the facet of uh, the museum that you work in. Your passion for your job uh, absolutely translates into the stories that we're telling and ultimately mm-hmm. to the visitors' experiences. And you really never know who, through your passion, uh, you might inspire. So those are my three bits of advice. Oh, thank you. That is some great advice. Thanks, Nathan. And thank you for joining us tonight. We appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule. Yeah, thank you so much for the opportunity and thanks for doing what you do. I think this is great. That wraps up this edition of the M-Files. We'd like to thank Nathan for joining us and sharing his insights and museum experiences. Before we sign off, remember to keep the conversation going until next time by following us on Facebook at the M-Files podcast. 
Also, please rate and review us on your favorite podcast platform. Your input is appreciated as we continue to grow and develop our podcast.